We study God's Word together. We worship together. We fellowship together. We serve together. And so will you come? Will you come do this with us? Will you come and help the First Baptist Church of San Antonio be better together? Well, good morning and welcome to Logos Worship. My name is Danny, one of the pastors here on staff at First Baptist Church and have the privilege of being the preaching pastor in this venue. If you're new with us today, we're delighted that you're here. We would love for you to let us know by going to fbcsa.org slash connect. If you stick around, um, I'd love to meet you down here after worship, love to know your name, see your face, and and we'll have something to to give to you to take home to learn more about who we are as the First Baptist family. But let us know you're here um, by going to that link. Um, It is our mission as the First Baptist family uh, to faithfully follow Jesus and to lead all others into a joyful life with him. That's what we wanna be about more and more as his church family, as we leverage um, the work of the Spirit in us in San Antonio and in all the world. We wanna be about what God is doing uh, in his kingdom. Well, last week we began a brand new series in incredible fashion, didn't we? Uh, We started off this brand new series called Better Together, all together in one venue, worshiping together. If you were there, wasn't that just beautiful? It was awesome. In fact, I've spoken with several of you already saying, hey, could you think we could do that kind of more often just so we can capture who we are as the First Baptist Church family all together in one space? And the answer is absolutely. Uh, we wanna find ways to do that more and more. But at the very least, it was a very keen reminder that we are indeed better together. And this series, uh, we want to unpack what does that mean to be the church Uh, And what does it mean for us to be better together? Now, throughout the New Testament, uh, God uses a number of metaphors or analogies or examples to help us understand how the church is knitted together, how believers who have been redeemed in Christ individually are now wedded together and knitted together as a part of his church. And we're going to spend some time, especially this past, last week and this week, really kind of bringing to light three main metaphors. Last week, um, we talked about the body, how Paul said, you know what? The church is kind of like the human body. Um, And also today, we're going to be talking about how Paul says, you know what? The church is kind of like a family, um, or, or the bride of Christ, like we talked about during kids' time. We have these metaphors, and God uses these metaphors for two reasons. One is to help us, obviously, understand what the church is all about, how we are knitted together. But another way is, he says, I want you to be able 
to have the same perception that I do. Um, When God thinks about his church, he doesn't just think about us individually. He thinks about us corporately, that we are bound with one another. In Revelation chapter 19, verse seven, uh, Jesus receives not just Danny and Anna and all these other believers across the world, he receives his bride. And so there is value in us trying to begin to, to perceive his church in the same way that God looks at his church. Uh, to move past just this individual expression as a follower of Jesus, to begin to think about how do I think of myself as a part of this body of believers? How do I begin to think of myself as part of the family of God or as the bride of Christ? To move beyond self, which is important, God has redeemed you, but to move beyond just the you to think about the we. And why is that important for us as the church? That's where we're going to be at it. Just a a few words about the body of Christ that I want to mention and point back to next week. Paul had really two major hangups with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He had two major hangups. The first hangup he had with them, and there was a lot of correcting going on in the church of Corinth, but this was one major area. The church in Corinth had put superior value on spiritual experiences over living a life in the real world following the Spirit's leadership. They prized worship experiences, they prized charismatic ecstatic experiences, and for them, they would say, to be truly spiritual, your life has to be made up of these experiences And those of a greater value than just daily living, faithfully following Jesus. They really bucked up against Paul. And the second thing that he had to hang up with them, kind of building off the first, is they would say, in order for you to be a really spiritual person, a real mature person in Jesus, then you have to have one particular kind of gift. And for them, that was the gift of speaking in tongues. You really weren't a real Christian or a spiritual person unless you use this kind of very visible, everyone can see it and hear it kind of gift. And so Paul says, listen, I know you've had questions about spiritual gifts, but let me tell you, the spirit always exalts the sum. That's the first thing that he says. The Spirit always points back to Jesus. It doesn't exalt the self. Look at me and what I can do. The Spirit always exalts Jesus. But also he says, listen, I want you to know that that the, the Spirit of God works in every single believer. All of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God gives a lot of different kinds of gifts. And he says, it's kind of like the human body, right? Not everyone's gonna be an arm, Not everyone's gonna be an eye. Not everyone's gonna be a foot. And you shouldn't be telling everyone they have to be a a hand or a foot, right? Don't tell everyone, in order to be a real human body, all of you have to be the same thing. Paul says, don't say that. Don't say that. You are better together in all the unique ways that the Spirit of God has gifted you, even the visible ways and the invisible ways, the seen ways and the unseen ways, and God will use all of you in the power of the Spirit of God to bind you together as his body to do what? To exalt Jesus together. 
It was a reminder, it's not just about the one, it's about all of you. It's not just about the one gift, it's all the gifts. It's all the gifts. What a beautiful picture for us to start this Better Together series, to be reminded that every single person in this room, whether you're young or old, whether you've been in the faith 30 years or one year or two months, God's intent and desire for you is to be gifted, held secure by the Spirit of God, and to be bound together in his church to be a part of what he's doing. All of you are important to the kingdom of God because of the work of the Spirit of God in you. And all of you aren't gonna be like me. And that's good. And here's another thing. Kids, adults, just because you're not up here preaching doesn't mean that somehow Danny Panter is more spiritual than you are. Doesn't mean that. And that's what Paul's trying to say, that all of us in Christ, held secure by the Spirit of God, gifted by the Spirit of God, growing up in Jesus together, have the same value in Christ, and as we're bound together, we'll be increasingly more and more about what he is doing, which is exalting his son, Jesus Maybe Ephesians chapter four, verse 16 puts this in probably the clearest way. Listen to this verse, just thinking about the body. Verse 16 of chapter four. Jesus makes the whole body fit together perfectly. The spirit, sorry, makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. We are better together. All of us need one another to grow up more in Jesus. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what he was trying to communicate to the church back in Corinth. But what in the world does God have to say about the family of God? That's where we're headed this morning. Um, if uh, Romans chapter eight, if you have a copy of God's word, go ahead and open up uh, there with me or pull it up on your device or look at it in your worship folder, whatever is easiest, but follow along with me. And we're gonna be answering the question, um, what are the bonds that we share that make us a part of the family of God? How does that work? What is... What is the connective tissue in us that makes us the family of God? And we see that indirectly and directly in Romans chapter eight. I'm gonna begin in verse 14. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me and we're gonna read verses 14 through 17. Let's read that together. For all who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit, you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Let's pray. Father, Lord, speak to us by the power of your spirit through your word that we may see, hear, and obey in all of life. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, 
amen. So in what ways are we bound together as family? What do these verses say to us about being part of God's family? Now, clearly we see in these texts that becoming part of the family of God is a work of the Spirit of God. In fact, all of chapter seven and eight, uh, Paul is teaching the Roman church and now us what it means to, be, to live by the Spirit, uh, what it means to be freed from sin and the life of living in the flesh and now being held secure by the Spirit of God and living in the Spirit of God, this new life of freedom in God's Spirit, And then he begins to introduce this family kind of language in these verses now. So what makes us family? Uh, the first thing that makes us family that we see in verses 14 through 16, and I'll just read verse 14 again, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. We're children of God. The Holy Spirit does something extraordinary here, and it's, it's a mystery. It's kind of like when Jesus describes, you know, you, you really can't see the wind. The wind blows where it wants to blow. The work of the Spirit of God is mysterious. We don't know exactly how all this happens, but what he does, the kind of work that he does in you and me, if we put our faith and trust in Christ, is absolutely extraordinary, in that the Holy Spirit does some DNA rewiring so that we are now deemed children of God. Isn't that crazy? Uh, that we are now called sons and daughters of God because of this extraordinary, mysterious work of life in the Spirit, of work by the Spirit of God that we are deemed sons and daughters. We go from slaves to sons. Man, slaves to sons. As slaves, we were not just bound uh, to the consequences of our sin, but we were bound to a life of sin. We had nowhere else to go but to continue to give our arms and our legs and our minds and our eyes to sin. We were held in bondage, but when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is deposited in our life and he does that rewiring, he unshackles those bonds and he says, you're no longer a slave. You're no longer bound to the consequences of sin. You know, we're bound to a life of sin. You are now free it's extraordinary. The Spirit of God makes us family of God, sons and daughters of the living God. It's incredible. This is both relational and legal. The language here is incredible, beautiful language. It says in verse 16, 15, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. That, that adoption language is a very legal term, right? That we have been declared now sons and daughters of God with legal standing, which means we have all the rights therein, right? As sons and daughters of God. So not only relationally do we have we had this DNA rewiring by the Spirit of God to become sons and daughters of God, but we have now legal standing to be sons and daughters of God. It's kind of like the story, the prodigal son, remember that? I'm not gonna go through the whole story. The wayward son comes home and he enjoys all the rights as the son once again, banquet, signet ring, robe. He celebrated his son. You remember the older son? 
He's like, why in the world are you giving him all the attention he messed up? What did the father say to him? He said, can I remind you you're my son too? Everything has been available to you. This is what it means to be adopted in a legal sense that when, when, when the judge declares, when the Holy Spirit declares this son, this daughter has been adopted into the family of God, God is saying, it's all yours. It's all yours. Uh, this morning before I did um, my final twink- tinkering with my sermon, by the way, I, I tinker up to the last minute. You might not know that, but um, I was watching a video of a declaration of a judge in a courtroom when a little child was finally uh, legally adopted. It was awesome. And the judge says, this daughter is now adopted by this man and this woman and this new daughter has all the rights as a, as a daughter of this family and all the responsibility that this mom and dad have to this child that they adopted. What an incredible picture of what it means to be a part of the family of God that is work of the Holy Spirit in us that we are declared no longer slaves but sons and daughters and we have all the privileges and rights therein as fully legally adopted into God's family. That's one way in which we are connected by the power of the Spirit of God as his children. That makes us siblings. That makes us related that makes us connected. I don't care how upset or frustrated you are by your brother and sister, they're always gonna be your brother and sister, right? We're connected with one another and that's on purpose. That's on purpose. The second way that we can see some of this kind of connective tissue that that is made possible by the power of the Spirit of God is that we are now safe, which I've already kind of alluded to. We are fully accepted and safe in this relationship with God. Romans chapter 8, 15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received the spirit when he adopted you as his own children. We have gone uh, from being fearful because of our bondage to sin right? The result of our bondage to sin is what? Death. Uh, The wrath of God and his judgment. God is holy and just, and our sins demand holy and just judgments, which means that we receive as slaves to sin his wrath. And that's scary as slaves. If we are left as slaves, we have nothing but fear, When Christ returns, if we're just slaves, we're in trouble. But he says, no, in the spirit, you're made sons and daughters. You're no longer slaves. You no longer have to live with the, the fear as a slave. And fear, it goes from fear to full acceptance and safety before the father, fully accepted by the father. We no longer fear God's wrath and future judgment when we are in Christ, when the Holy Spirit has been deposited in us and has done that mysterious, awesome DNA rewiring, making us children of God. We don't have to live in fear. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter four, the author would say, you can go to God's throne boldly. 
not cowering. Now, boldly doesn't mean cavalierly. We still have appropriate fear and awe and respect of the God who created the universe and who has expectations for us as children of God, but we come in there knowing that we are fully accepted. That he's not gonna turn us away. Now, listen, I'm hoping this is what it's like for my girls. On occasion, on occasion, I'll have to come to the base of the stairs and say, Addison, now there could be multiple thoughts going through Addison's head. I think Addison's in the room, but, and, and she can correct me later if I'm wrong. But I'm anticipating, she's probably thinking, okay, they either want me to do something, a chore, or maybe I'm gotten in trouble. But I would like to think, but because the kind of relationship as father that I have with Addison and all my girls, that there is not one thought that crosses their mind that says, oh, my dad's gonna kick me out of the house. I know I've done this and, and I, I'm just done, I'm done. He's gonna say, I, you, I don't love you anymore. You're done, you go on your own, you live on your own, you're no longer part of this family. That, I, I, Addison, does that ever cross your mind? No, not in a million years, why? Because she is fully accepted as my daughter. She is fully loved as my daughter. And even though I can holler Addison at the base of the stairs and there might be consequences or there might be discipline or there might be a chore, she never wonders whether or not I, ha I love her or accept her. She feels safe with me. And that's, that's what Paul is trying to communicate is that we no longer have to live in fear of what God is gonna do. Is he, is he gonna send me away? Is he gonna cast me out? He's not gonna love me anymore. Yeah, we, he still disciplines us. Hebrews says, listen, the father disciplines those whom he what? Loves, right? Loves. But as sons and daughters of God, because of the work of the spirit of God, because we're part of the family of God, we never question that. We come to the father with full confidence that he has received us. Connective tissue, that what's, that's what makes us part of the family of God, we are fully received and accepted by the Father. Uh, the last thing, um, the last bit of connective tissue that we have, and there might be a lot of other things that we can name here, we see in Romans chapter eight, verse 17. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, this is crazy. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. We are heirs of God's glory. And since we are his children, we are heirs, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if, listen to this, but if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So there are two things that we inherit. One is this side of Jesus's return and one is fully fulfilled on the other side of Jesus's return. The first thing that we inherit that's promised to us is God's very own glory as co-heirs with Jesus, right? Uh, we, we see Jesus glorified 
in the resurrection, right? Jesus died for our sin. He, as if he were our sin, he died upon the cross and he despised that shame. He hated it. The father forsook him in that moment, but he rose in glory in the resurrection as king over all of creation. And Paul says, you know, one day, that same kind of glory is gonna be yours. Obviously a little different in that we are sons and daughters, but we are co-heirs with Christ and that we receive Christ's glory. We don't have authority over heaven and earth like Jesus does, but we share in his glory. When we ourselves and Christ return and we're called up and resurrected from the dead and, and we receive and are in full fellowship with God and all of his glory, it's gonna be incredible. That is part of our inheritance uh, we see this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. I love the way the Apostle John words this. Um, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It, he says this, Dear friends, we are already God's children. Love the language, pointing back to Paul. We are God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. He's talking about future glory. But we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. That's the apostle Paul pointing to that future inheritance. We don't know all the ways that it's gonna be like, but when we see him in all of his glory, we will receive that inheritance of glory to its fullest degree. It's part of our inheritance. We hold on to that. That's, that promise is one of the promises that keeps us going, right? That living life on this side of eternity is absolutely worth clinging on to Jesus because the promise of future glory is greater than any glory this world can promise, right? But then he says something really uh, hard, right? In the end of Romans chapter 17, but if we are to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. What does Paul mean by that? I think Paul is painting a very realistic picture for us. Jesus said himself, listen, don't think you're gonna be treated any differently than I was treated when I walked this earth. The same way that they hated me and called me names, they're gonna hate you and call you names. Not to mention, we live in a very sin-ridden, broken world. We continue to sin and struggle with sin and aim to have victory over sin through Christ in our own life. But until Jesus returns, we live in a world that hates Jesus and wants to do away with anything that points to Christ, wants to live their own way. We live in a world like that. Not to mention, we have earthquakes, famines, cancer, you name it. We live in a, a broken world where we continue to suffer. And Paul says, listen, um, you also inherit the suffering this side of eternity because holding on to Jesus sometimes is very hard. It's hard clinging to Christ in a world in which we live. Enduring to the end is not going to be easy as the church. And there are brothers and sisters across the world that taste that now. And we do to some degree, but not to the degree that they're tasting it. 
they're hurting, they're suffering, and they're clinging on to that promise. If you suffer with him, you also be glorified in him. This is Paul's just painting that realistic picture. Hold on to the end, church. Hold on to the very end. It's gonna hurt. It's, you're gonna suffer. You're gonna be called names. You're gonna be called evil. You're gonna experience just the suffering that this world provides and it's diseases and whatever, but listen, suffer if you suffer well together. Holding on to the promises of God, you will inherit his glory. Not just you. Now see our tendency, here it is. Our tendency is, is when we even read verses like that, we think about the self, don't we? What am I gonna suffer? And that's not a bad thing to think. But when we contemplate what it means to be better together, I think the force of this verse for us is, is how do we share in the sufferings that we experience this side of eternity together? How do we shoulder this together? How do we move through this together? How do we help one another together? How do we encourage each other, hold each other accountable together? Not just you, but us. Us. Thinking about how we are knitted together as the family of God, considering the ways in which we are the bride of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and the good works he has planned for us to do in his righteousness, thinking of ourselves as the body of Christ, that we are knitted together by the power of the spirit of God. In fact, we need each other if we're gonna grow up in Jesus, changes the way we think about the church. It ought to change the way you think about your own spirituality and your spiritual maturity and your spiritual growth. It should change how we think about the tangible ways in which God has knit us together and what that really means. I think when we begin to think more and more along the lines of these metaphors or in the ways I believe God sees his church not just as individuals, which is important, but as a bound body of believers, it changes the way I think. I begin to think like this. We have a vested interest in one another to finish the race strong. I just don't wanna finish the race strong. I want him to finish the race strong too. And I want her to finish the race strong too. Now I know because of my connectedness to you as family, I just don't want to consider myself finishing strong. I want to make sure you finish strong too. So this week, uh, Addison and I worked out together once, which is great. But even having Addison alongside me just made me work a little harder. Have you experienced that? When you have someone else in the room that has come alongside you, even if it's not in explicit ways that they weren't there for that particular reason, just having someone else in the room just makes you stay focused a little longer to work a little harder. This is what happens when we begin to see the church the way God sees the church. It's not just about me, but it's about my brother. Another way in which I begin to think is I begin to think that 
Uh, We need each other as we endure the hardship of a broken world. I've already spoken about that. We, We share, we come alongside, we encourage when another brother and sister is hurting. We need each other in order to grow up in Jesus, to be healthy. That's how Paul describes the church in Ephesians 4, that we're we're knitted and held together by sinew and, and muscle so that we can all grow up in Jesus in his love. It's like, in Paul's mind, growing up in Jesus really can't happen efficiently or successfully unless we do it with one another. It's not just about your spiritual growth, it's about our spiritual growth. We need each other. I need your giftedness, I need your encouragement, I need your nudging. And I'm not gonna grow up in Jesus the ways in which I ought to grow if I don't have you along my side. If we don't have each other. That's what Paul's saying. And lastly, we need each other to effectively join God in what he is doing in all the world. We need each other. Will you challenge your own thinking and ask new questions about your role in God's church and how he wants to bless, use you to bless others in being better together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace at work in us through the power of your spirit. Um, thank you for all the uniqueness expressed in this room through the power of your spirit. Thank you for binding us together as your bride, as your family, as your body. Help us to understand and live out in tangible ways that we are indeed better together. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's family says amen.